Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshibazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shesh Bazaar brought all these along when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. May God bless this word to us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that as we look at it now and as the kids look at it in Sunday school, that uh, you'd be opening up our eyes, helping us to understand things we didn't understand before and uh, encouraging us to, uh, to put you first in our lives and to trust you knowing that you are the, uh, the sovereign God who cares for his people and who loves us more than we can imagine. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes the world seems a shaky place. Do you think that's true? I don't just mean earthquakes like <clears throat> what happened recently in Turkey, but uh, I think Politically and economically, the world can seem like a shaky place. There's a lot of people who are worried about Europe at the moment, aren't they? Uh, about the economies of Europe that just seem to be tumbling uh, and uh, having an impact on each other. Uh, the latest economy on the brink is, of course, Italy. That's, uh, that's something to be concerned about because uh, Italy is the eighth biggest economy in the whole of the world uh, and look at all the famous brand names and companies that uh, that have come out you know half the designer labels in the world are based in Italy uh, half the prestige sports car manufacturers are based in Italy uh, it's a big economy and it used to seem so secure but uh, now if the economists are to believe Unless someone does something drastic about the Eurozone, then Italy is going to be leading all these other economies over a cliff economically. And there are fears about 
um, politics and the, uh, the world, uh, the order of world power at this present time. Uh, what is the world going to look like into the future with an America that is struggling, with a China that is uh, growing economically and developing big military muscle? What will the world look like? Does it sometimes feel to you like the world's a bit shaky? Well, it does to non-Christians, does to people who don't believe in a sovereign God who rules over the affairs of this world, uh, to people who don't believe in a God who is at work in order to achieve his purposes. But sometimes we can be a bit like that as well, especially even when it comes to uh, the church. Uh, we may want to uh, share the gospel. We may want to see God's church grow. We may want to live godly lives. But in Australia, we face challenges, don't we? Um, particularly materialism and just plain old-fashioned apathy towards God. Do you think Australians are apathetic towards God? Uh, a minister friend and myself walked into a, uh, a business the other day. There was a lady working there and uh, she asked us, what do you guys do for a living? And my friend said, well, we work for for the church and she said what do you do working for the church my friend said we teach the bible and she said what's the bible <laughs> and we we didn't react like that we thought fantastic here's someone who actually wants to talk about the bible and so next time we go there we're going to give us some information and and so on uh, Australians are, you know, there's great apathy and sometimes we can ask the question, what is God doing? Is he doing anything? What, what is God doing to achieve his purposes? Well, friends, tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament is this tiny little book called Ezra. Have you heard many sermons on Ezra? First time? It's not a well-known book. Uh, and if, if you have trouble finding it, I won't blame you if you have to check out the table of contents to find Ezra. It's on page 334, by the way. And uh, if you have a look at that, if you open it up and just browse over chapter 2, uh, if Peter Charles phones you up during the week and says, hey, are you willing to read the Bible passage in church this Sunday? I will understand if your world seems a bit shaky at that point in time. Any volunteers to read the passage next Sunday? Anyone want to move that it be Peter Charles? Anyone second that? All those in favour say aye. Those against say no. The ayes have it. Motion is carried. But friends, as we dive into Ezra over the next four or five weeks, we're going to see that although it's a very small and obscure book, that it's a book that raises some very big issues about God. And it does so in a way which is deceptively simple. Issues about how God works in the world. Issues about how God is achieving his purposes in the world. Issues about the faithfulness of God in fulfilling the promises that he has made. 
Now, one of the reasons I've chosen for us to study Ezra is because uh, historically it follows on from 1 and 2 Kings. Now, remember we, uh, we finished 2 Kings in about July of, of this year. And uh, at the end of 2 Kings, uh, we found that uh, the people of Judah were kind of maybe asking the question of what was God doing in their world because things were very shaky for them. Um, the Babylonians uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar had invaded and they had defeated uh, the, uh, the, the Jews and they had stripped uh, the Jews of everything that they, that they, that they treasured. Um, God's temple was destroyed. Uh, the city, the holy city of David was in ruins and they, God's people, had been taken out of the land, the promised land, the land that God had promised to their forefather Abraham. They had been taken out of the land and they had been marched across the desert and they were living, the Babylonian exile had begun. And that's where we let, left off at the end of two kings. Do you remember that now? Actually, uh, two one and two kings describes the history of Israel from the perspective of the kings. Um, one and two chronicles describes the same history, but from the perspective of the priests. And uh, two chronicles falls just before Ezra. Um, have a look at the last few verses of two chronicles, just above one uh, Ezra chapter one. What do you notice about them? Well, they're the same as the first few verses of, of Ezra. You see that? Two Chronicles ends and overlaps with Ezra. It tells of the story of the Babylonian exile. And friends, the Babylonian exile was an absolute catastrophe for God's people. And so we come to Ezra chapter 1. And we read here in uh, Ezra chapter 1, uh, which is the same as uh, 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 36, verse 22. We read there in chapter one, verse 1 that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. So here we are introduced to Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, the Babylonian Empire, after Nebuchadnezzar, was ruled by Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. You might remember Belshazzar because we, we learned a bit about him when we studied the book of Daniel. Um, what was Belshazzar famous for? I'll tell you what he was famous for. He was famous for being a party boy. <laughs> and uh, in, in Daniel, I think it's in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar had taken the goblets, the silver and gold goblets, that his father Nebuchadnezzar had robbed from the holy temple in Jerusalem 
And in order to desecrate those holy articles, he had them used uh, at his drunken party. You remember that now? And then what did he see happen to a wall? He saw a hand writing some words in Aramaic on the wall and they were words of judgment. They were words of judgment. And that very night, and I can tell you what the night was, it was actually October the 16th, 539 BC. On October the 16th, 539 BC, the Persians invaded and they defeated the Babylonian army and Persia now ruled. And their ruler was Cyrus, who in Daniel is actually called King Darius. That's another story. Now, normally, what would that mean? Uh, Wouldn't it normally mean that you've got one despotic tyrant as now being replaced by another despotic tyrant? I mean, you wonder sometimes these revolutions that are taking place in other countries around the world where they turf out some guy that's been... Uh, oppressing them for the last 40 years and you kind of wonder who's going to take his place. Well, that wasn't actually the problem here. Um, this is The exact opposite happened because we see in these verses the very first, one of the very first things that the new ruler of Babylon did was that he made a proclamation and he even put it in writing It was a proclamation to let the Jews go home. Let's read it, verses 2 to 4. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Wow. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, He wants to liberate the Jews. He wants God's temple to be built again. And he wants people to provide the furnishings and the the livestock that will be necessary for sacrifices at the temple. He's a pagan king. I mean, what's going on here? What do you think is going on here? On the surface, uh, you've got to ask the question, has Cyrus been converted? (laughs) Don't you? Well, indeed, the Lord was moving in his heart, but maybe... look Look at what he says. He calls God the Lord. And when you see the Lord in the Old Testament where every letter is in capitals, that's actually the word Yahweh in the Hebrew. It's the specific name of the God of the Bible, Yahweh. And he confesses that Yahweh is the one who has given him all the kingdoms of the earth. 
at least the earth as he knew it. You've got to say that he seems more godly than most of the kings of Israel and Judah, don't you? Until you realise that he's actually a very shrewd politician. You see, when the Persians invaded a land and conquered it, if that land had captives who were living there in exile from their own country, it was Persian policy to allow them all to go home. Um, anyone been to the British Museum in London? Okay, Dorothy's been to the British... I've not been to the British Museum in London, but I understand that if you go there, uh, you can find a thing which is called the, the Cyrus Cylinder. Um, it's, it's a clay cylinder which the scientists and archaeologists date uh, as being produced in 539 BC. And on it, uh, around the, the surface of this clay cylinder, uh, is a, uh, a declaration which was written by Cyrus to the people of Babylon. And in that declaration, he thanks the Babylonian god Marduk for giving him his victory. Uh, and, and he presents himself as being the great liberator who freed all of the peoples of various nations whom were living in Babylon as captives. Uh, he depicts himself as being the great humanitarian who allowed everyone to go back to where they'd come from and to worship their own local gods. Uh, see, it was complex having all of these different people from different parts of the world all living together in Babylon, especially if they didn't really want to be there, some of them. Much better just to let them all go home, to kind of press the reset button and uh, decomplicate the whole situation. Uh, he was a politician. To the Babylonians, he, he praised the Babylonian God. To the Jews, he praised the Jewish God. But in fact, behind the military victories and the p political manoeuvring was, in fact, the mighty hand of Yahweh, the true God. You see, what was the real reason that uh, Cyrus allowed the Jews to go home? In verse 1, we are given two reasons. Firstly, it was to fulfil the word of the Lord given through the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet who ministered uh, before the uh, the main exile and during the, uh, the preliminary exiles because the exile happened in three stages and before then. I wonder if you might turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 25 for a moment. So you'll find Jeremiah 25 on page 555. 555. We had 11, 11, 11 during the week, didn't we? 
And if anyone remembered the 11th second of the 11th minute of the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of the 11th year of the century, then that was pretty good. <laughs> um, I didn't remember it. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 to 14. Let me read it. Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. Notice how he refers to Nebuchadnezzar as being his servant. Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have realised that, but he's serving the purposes of Yahweh. And I will bring against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations... I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sounds of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled... I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it a desolate forever. I will bring upon that land all the things I've spoken against it and all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Now, uh, what will happen after 70 years of exile? Well, the Babylonians would be punished. Uh, that's what, what would happen. Uh, the exile will go for 70 years, and then the Babylonians are going to, to cop it. Come with me to Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, verses 10 through to 14. A few pages on. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my promise my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on, on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I have carried you into exile. You see, not only would the Babylonians be punished after 70 years, but more than that, God's people would be returned. Now, um, the 70 years, most likely... Uh, starts with the beginning of the first deportation and finishes uh, 67 years exactly when the uh, exile, uh, when the Jews returned. So it's rounded up. But it's not just Jeremiah who prophesied this. I, I want you to take a look at what the prophet Isaiah uh, said about this many, many years earlier. In fact, at least 150 years earlier. See, uh, the exile, the return from exile happened in the 6th century BC. Isaiah 
prophesied in the 8th century BC. So he's a long way, um, a long time earlier than the return from exile. But have a look at what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. That's on page 516. And it's speaking of the Lord, and it says, The Lord who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, that is, the Messiah, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armour, to open doors before him, and so on. Now, there's a lot I could say about that, but friends, what I want to point out here is that the um, return of God's people from their exile in Babylon was not just the result of a shrewd politician trying to please the people who he had conquered. Uh, Not at all. It was prophesied well in advance. But more than that, the second thing we learn in verse 1 is that it was God who in his sovereign power moved the heart of the pagan king. So he prophesied it and then it was God who caused it to happen. He caused Cyrus to want to be the king who liberated those people, especially the Jews. And that's often the case, isn't it, that, uh, that God uses the sinful motivations of, of ungodly people uh, in order to bring about good and to bring about his good purposes. Um, there's a great example of that in the book of uh, Genesis towards the end. Uh, do you remember what, what's the great example in Genesis of evil men doing something out of wicked motivation but God utilising it for good? Can anyone think of... It's a great example involving one particular person. Yes, Joseph, that's correct. So that Joseph's brothers, out of their evil, sold him into slavery. And what happened? He became the prime minister of Egypt during a time when the rest of the area was in drought. And Egypt had stored up all of their... And his brothers came down and he was able to say to them, you meant this for evil, but God has used what you did in order to save many. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Now what is the greatest New Testament, the greatest example of of all of that kind of interaction between man's will and God's will? It is in the cross of... Jesus. Even Caiaphas, the ungodly priest, had said it's better for one man to die than for everyone to die. Didn't know that he was speaking such great truths. That God uses the evil of men to actually achieve his good purposes. And we see this in the example of Cyrus. You see, the return from exile, it wasn't just a backflip on God's part. 
It's not as if uh, God had changed his mind. Uh, It was always God's plan to strip his people not only of those things which they were trusting in, not only to, to strip them of their idols, not only to strip them of the land and the temple, but rather to strip them of their pride, to take away all of those things that they had let stand in the place of God so that they would be humbled, so that living in exile in Babylon, they would be like the psalmist who in Psalm 137 cries out, by the waters of Babylon we lay down and wept as we remembered Zion, so that they would be like Daniel, uh, who every day would pray. And as he prayed, he would pray in the direction of Jerusalem, Because he's saying, I don't want to be here. I want to be in God's holy city. I want to be at the temple. I want to be worshipping my Lord there. And so Cyrus issued this declaration of liberty. And then in verses 5 through to 11, the return from exile begins. Have a look at verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Uh, Why did they want to go back to Jerusalem? Was it because they enjoyed the lifestyle in Jerusalem? Uh, Was it because they just enjoyed being a bit freer from the Babylonians? No, it wasn't. In actual fact, a lot of the Jews were doing pretty well for themselves in Babylon. They were given great liberties there to run businesses and to work in government and and so on. No, why did they want to go back? They wanted to build the temple. That was their number one priority. That was where their heart lay. Now, we must not think that to worship God means to build a temple. Or, you know, so there are people who, you know, we mustn't think that to worship God means to go and build a building, as if you only worship God by building buildings. Because as we'll see next week, the, the temple in Jerusalem was only a symbol. It was a symbol of God dwelling amongst his people. It is a symbol which is fulfilled when God actually stepped into our world in the person of his son Jesus. You cannot have God dwelling with his people any more than for God to dwell with his people through his son. The temple is a symbol of God as he dwells in us through his Holy Spirit so that we are the temple of God. We are the living stones. We are like some of these articles that were taken back. Because there was about 50,000 Jews that returned. It's just over the bit more than the population of Port Macquarie. Uh, It was a bit like the exodus from Egypt, um, but only smaller. 
And in verses 5 through 11, lots of people chipped in because not all of the Jews went back. A lot of them stayed there. And we see there in verses 5 to 11 that there was neighbours who chipped in. They gave them silver and gold uh, uh, so that they could uh, make use of those things in the temple. Uh, They gave them cattle so that they could uh, use the cattle for... um, for sacrifices at the temple. Uh, Even Cyrus himself chipped in, didn't he? And Cyrus went and got all of the stuff that that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem in the first place. And what did he do? He gave it all back. Gave it all back. In fact, it lists them, doesn't it? Uh, It tells you how many of uh, what. Uh, In verse 11, it says that there were 5,400 articles all up. Anyone here good at doing calculations? Any mathematicians amongst us? Add up the numbers of the things that are listed there. Does it add up to 5,400? No, it adds up to 2,499. <laughs> so we can only assume that there's some missing information there and presumably what it means is that the 2,499 articles, so they were the important articles, but there was 5,000. The, the author of Ezra is not so dopey as to do a calculation mistake. Uh, there's information there that we don't, uh, just don't have. So what about the world and you? Does the world seem shaky to you sometimes? You sometimes wonder where the world is heading. You sometimes wonder about the growth of God's church and whether God's actually at work. There are many great truths which we'll learn about God in this often neglected book of Ezra. But as the book begins, we are reminded of the power and the sovereignty of Almighty God. King Cyrus, the political spin doctor, charmed his Jewish subjects by saying things about the God of the Bible which actually turn out to be true. More true than he could imagine. The Lord Yahweh is the God of heaven. He is the one who rules over the kingdoms of the earth. He is the King of kings. And he is the God who has planned out a future for our world. Our world will not continue um, ad infinitum as it is. God has a plan There is a future for our world and the future is that one day Jesus will return. Put an end to sin. Put an end to this world order as it is. And we who trust in Jesus uh, on that day, the persecuted church will become the church victorious. As our saviour as our Jesus leads us to the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, where we will be with God in his presence forever and ever and ever. And when we understand that God is faithful to his promises, the world doesn't seem so shaky anymore. Others may shake and tremble, but we have a hope which is a sure and a certain hope. And what we also see in this opening chapter of Ezra is that it is God 
who moves the hearts of men. Uh, He moved the heart of the pagan king to issue a decree. He moved the hearts of men and women to want to go and worship him. And so if it's God who moves hearts, then we need to be people of prayer. We need to be people who regularly, frequently, who are people who plead that God would stir up the hearts of men and women today, that they would put their trust in the gospel, that they would be looking forward to the heavenly hope, the new Jerusalem, and that they would love God as first in their lives. Now next week we're going to look at what happened when they built the temple. Why don't we just pray now as we bring these matters before God. Father in heaven, we want to thank you that you are indeed the true God, the God of heaven and earth, the God who rules over the kingdoms of this world, the God who even rules in the hearts of uh, the kings, the politicians, the presidents, the prime ministers, to bring about your good purposes in ways which we will one day understand. Father, we thank you that you are a God who planned out the future for your people, uh, Israel, a future, a plan to bless them, and that you are the God who has planned out the future for our world and indeed for us who trust in Jesus. We thank you that one day he will return and he will take us out of this world into the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. We look forward to that day, Father. We pray that as we live in this world now, that you by your spirit would be moving the hearts of men and women and boys and girls, that their hearts would be changed, that they would come to hear the gospel, to understand the gospel, to believe the gospel, and to stake their futures in your promise of a heavenly Jerusalem. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.